there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. knows me knows that my dogs are never short on outfits. I buy leashes and collars like some people buy shoes and handbags and my favorite collar is Iggy's custom-made Paco collar. Paco collars are 100% handmade from scratch by an amazing staff of artists and the quality really is unparalleled. My dogs can't have collars that don't withstand wear and tear. They hike, they swim, they roll on dead stuff. These collars are guaranteed to last a lifetime and they're designed to be worn by active dogs like mine. Iggy's collar is perfect for her. It's got purple stones, stars, and a beautiful design. There are literally thousands of design options to choose from, but don't worry. The staff at Paco loves helping customers pick out the best collar for their pets. That's exactly what they did when I went to their booth with Iggy. And they make stuff for humans too, so get over to pacocollars.com and buy the best collar you've ever had, and don't forget to enter promo code COGDOG for free shipping. Today we have the final episode in the Synergy Saga. I have Sin's handler, Carrie, on the phone, and we're going to talk more about Sin's case. Hi, Carrie. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. So let's jump right in and tell everybody where Sin is now in her training and her career. Wow. Um, We are in a super good place. I would say that... You know, after the last trial, I really felt like we had runs that were complete magic. I really feel like we're becoming a team. We're very connected. And I'm very, very happy with that. And I think one of the biggest reflections of how far we've come is recently we did a USDA team tournament. And... For her to be in a ring for Team Relay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> and during that relay, she gave me a two-jump lead out. Oh, my gosh. ran clean. I know. I know. It's crazy. So <laughs> so great. I so. think that's something that sometimes people never get. <laughs> <laughs> that's well, awesome. We've had it now once. So... It's, I mean, there was, there was a time, honestly, I thought, I don't know if I can ever do team with her, you know, yeah. that we can have it together and she can be composed and arousal managed and be able to function. So for me, that was a huge marker that we were able to do that. Huge. I'm so happy to hear it. Um, yeah. So you've had a lot of different kinds of dogs and you've done agility yes. actually with a wide range of breeds. I have. So you have. So what is different uh-huh. about Sin and versus your other dogs? So I think, you know, backing up, my first agility dog um, was a great Dane named Orion. Yeah. And he actually came from a line of Danes that had done a lot of performance. And he... Um, there are some actual things that are very similar between Orion and Synergy, which I've always kind of looked back onto that as well. But, you know, running a dog that's 130 pounds and 36 inches, there's a lot of power behind that. 
Um, yeah. and he, uh, he actually was a, a pretty speedy guy. Like, you know, back then he was running jumpers courses in the six yards per second time frame. Yeah. That's fast. Yeah. <laughs> to have a lot of mass coming at you. So uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so, you know, I began with the Ryan and then his, his nephew, um, Voltaire and intermixed, I got into Italian greyhounds. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's not yeah. weird at all. That's, they're like, they're basically the same breed. I mean, that's. I, I know, they're so close. You know, <laughs> 130 pounds. And... Versus tiny, fragile, little tiny thing. I know. <laughs> all right, so tell us about yeah. your Iggies. So I've had um, Twig and Gemini. And they're fun little, they're just fun dogs to have. Um, And conversely to the Danes where you have to like, oh my God, I need to get out of the way of this dog. (laughs) You know, the the Iggy's are, they're much more pressure sensitive and they have those kind of issues. And, um, you know, Twig had some every once in a while, like the boogeyman would randomly appear in one of our courses. And we just had different issues with that. Yep. So, um, there was a time that was, oh, I guess it was around 2010. I'm not quite exactly sure, but I know that I was running Voltaire and Twig and we were at a, um, a charity trial where there was agility, herding, some modified lure coursing and fly ball. Mm-hmm. So all of that's going on. And I wandered over to the fly ball area and I hadn't really ever watched it, and I saw this whippet named Dragon running, and I had never ever seen a whippet like him. Um, he was—he had so much power and speed, and he was so focused. But then when I saw him with this handler away, he was a very chill dude, and I was like, "Wow, that is an amazing animal." And I was just, you know, honestly, I was enamored by Dragon. And I kind of, you know, I followed what he was doing on the internet. Um, <laughs> you became Dragon Stalker. I, I feel like dog people can relate. Like, this is how so many of us get our dogs. <laughs> yeah, so, yes. so I covertly stalked Dragon. And um, at a point when um, Voltaire had been retired, I had moved from Arizona to Colorado I knew that Twig was going to be retiring. Um, I knew that I wanted another dog. And I just kept going back to Dragon and had looked. He'd had um, litters. Those dogs had various degrees of success in multiple sports. And so I contacted his owner, Stephanie, and she was like, you know, he doesn't have any litters coming up, but there's this litter in Ohio, you might be interested in. (laughs) So, yep. Yep. And, um, she actually had had, um, a puppy from sin's mom, um, Sunday. And I, I looked at the breeding. It was agility race bred mix. So, and I saw videos of synergy's mom, Sunday synergy's half brother, Stino. And I got totally excited. Cool. I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be great. And at the time that I ended up contacting Stephanie, who's Dragon's owner, and Julie, 
who is Synergy's breeder, there was one dog left. <laughs> and that was Sin. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so the universe <laughs> it just, basically yeah, it just, just made it happen. You had no other choices. Yes. There she was. Uh-huh. And there she was. And, you know, you the original question was like, how is she different? Well, Sin, you know, she has so much power and speed in this tiny package. You know, yeah. she's 18 and three quarters now. And, you know, she just has this huge heart. You know, she runs with massive speed. When she courses, she has tremendous heart. When she races, she's tiny compared to those big boys. And it doesn't intimidate her at all. Yeah. So, so I think, she you is know, incredible. that's how she, Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I'm a little biased, but I yes. mean, she, I agree. She's fantastic. So yeah. let's talk about synergies issues and kind of which of them do you feel are related to her genetics? And do you feel like any of them, I don't see her as having what I would call typical quote unquote sight hound problems, but most of the sight hounds that we know, I think today are actually bred for the confirmation ring instead of for racing um or hunting anymore and so what what of her issues are kind of sighthound issues or related to her genetics in any way as far as you can tell wow i mean that's a huge question because i honestly really can't tell um i mean none of us can really tell right <laughs> we're always yeah. asking you know what what of what part of this is genetics and which part of it isn't and the answer is everything is both nature mm-hmm. and nurture, right? They don't actually right. stand alone. Um, but just elaborate on what you think makes her different, I guess, um, because of what kind of dog and specifically what kind of whippet she is. Well, I think, in, and admittedly, I'm very new into the world of whippets and and have experience with Sin and, and now Gator, but she... Being race bred, you know, she has tremendous speed. Yeah. She definitely does. Even though she's tiny, she has a lot of speed. Um, She has a lot of drive. Um, From what I read and talk with with other people, most of these dogs, you know, right off, like almost out of the womb, are great tuggers, um, fairly easy to train, you Mm -hmm. know, from that respect. and it's kind of hard, honestly, Sarah, because the only sight hounds I have to compare with are the Italian greyhounds. So, so very you know, different. The, yeah, <laughs> very different. Very, super different. Um, well, so. what I think is that um, she is basically whenever I work with dogs that are, I call them dogs with big feelings. Right. And uh-huh. they usually wind up in the worked up program. Um, people usually expect most of the dogs I have in that program to be border collies and they're usually not. Um, and I think the reason they expect that is because they see a lot of intensity in that breed. And there is a lot of intensity in that breed. Um, but there's also a lot of softness in that breed um, and a lot of sensitivity to you know, human pressure, um, and environmental pressure and things like that. 
Whereas when I see breeds like like Synergy, so this is a Whippet, but this is a race bred Whippet. So in my opinion, this is closer to, um, I hope nobody gets upset about this, but for me, this is closer to what a Whippet was, was intended to be or uh-huh. was originally. Um, when I see dogs like that, what I find is that they've not been softened by our intentional breeding um, to make them easier to show in the breed ring, easier to have as house pets. And she's a great house pet, but uh-huh. she's a she's a lot of dog. Um, yes. <laughs> most people can't actually deal with a lot of dog in their day to day, which is why then most breeds, I think, have been kind of watered down to be easier house pets. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing overall, but when you seek something a little bit higher caliber, like she is, and I, uh-huh. you pr- didn't even necessarily know you were doing this. You just fell in love with dragon. Who's uh-huh. this type of whippet? Um, you know, Jade, the golden, who I talk about in a previous series on the podcast um, is what we would call a quote unquote field type golden um, meaning he was, he's bred to do more of the original tasks that the golden retriever was um, bred for, and he's a lot of dog too. So I, I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole, but I think that um, Sin will be after you. She, yeah, Sin says yes, rabbit hole. Where is it? Let's go. Um, but I think that you know she wouldn't strike anybody as kind of a typical sighthound, but the reason for that is probably because what we know of as a typical sighthound today uh-huh. is a watered-down version of what these guys originally were. Because when you think about, yes. um, when I think about sighthounds, you, you know, I think of most of them that I've known are pretty much couch potatoes. Uh-huh. Um, until there's a rapidly retreating object, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then they kind of turn on. But she's also got this insane tugging drive and um, has always been really into play and interaction. And she, um, and so I think, you know, you would think that as you're talking about her, people are going, this sounds perfect. This sounds like a perfect sport dog. And in so many ways it is. Yes. But this yes. leads me into my next question because she is a perfect sport dog, but she's a high caliber sport dog. Uh-huh. And you were a good trainer and a good handler, and you had to be a great trainer and great handler for her. So, when did you know that you needed to up your game for this dog? Okay. That's an easy question. <laughs> so. <laughs> so- there are, there are little things happening, but, you know, very easily there was a trial in June of 2016 where her start line was gone and she was, like, literally, like, flying off the dog walk. Like, she was jettisoned off an aircraft carrier. <laughs> she might have been an F-16. You know, it was just <laughs> gone. Um, we had no, (laughs) yeah, we had no connection. Um, things were just, it was chaos. It was a hot mess. Um, 
I had ringside people telling me crazy things like, you need to slow that dog down. <laughs> and <laughs> Always no. such a joke of an advice line. Don't like uh-huh. it. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. whenever you hear that one, I, I just smile and nod because number one, mm-hmm. yeah, right. How? But yeah. number two, nobody wants that. Nobody wants him to be slow. <laughs> anyway, keep, keep going. <laughs> right. And, and so I just, New and honestly, I felt like I was not the handler, the trainer that this dog needed. I knew that she had potential and that she was spectacular in a lot of ways. And I was, I was not up to the job at that time. I was like, you know, I hate to say this, but I felt like I had failed her. And, you know, you have those weird feelings that like, oh, maybe she would have been better off with somebody who's a better trainer, better handler. And then um, at that point, I went and contacted you. Yeah. And said, help, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And said, help. And I talked to some other friends as well who'd known me for a long time. And when you came back and said that you could help me, I went, okay. I felt relief. And I felt, you know, honestly joyful. And yeah. then I was like, you know, okay, it's time to hit reset and let's let's do this. Yeah, and let's and let's get real <laughs> about everything uh-huh. that you had to do. Uh-huh. Right? Yes. Um yes. do you wanna talk a little bit about some of the arousal management that you sure. had started to do? with me because we had um you put it really well you when you and I were talking you said um you saw this as kind of a three-pronged process and Uh we had some training that we needed to do and I talked about that in episode two um you had to learn how to handle a dog like this because you've never had anything like this before um and we'll talk about that in a bit but then you also had to learn about her arousal levels and her yes. state of adrenaline, basically. So talk about that a little bit. Yes. I mean, that that was a super interesting. Um, and I really had an aha moment um, when, when we were doing things for arousal testing in general. And you asked me to do the same testing that I would do at Agility when I took her coursing. Yeah. And she couldn't do it. Yeah. She just, she just couldn't do it. And, you know, when we go coursing or racing, um, she outwardly, she's not like lunging or going physically bonkers like that. But if you look at her, like her, her chin, she's chattering, her muscles are shaking. She's very, she's pointed either at the start box or the start line for coursing. Um, very intense focus that direction, but ask her to sit for a treat wouldn't happen. Right. She can't do it. But the interesting thing is, you know, you go load her in the box for racing or release her for coursing. And even when she's pegged that high, her performance is awesome. And it's, she's super good. And I can remember one best in field run where we had a a wait to go and they were working on the machine and you could hear the machine and the dogs could hear the machine. And so, she's starting to spool up and spool up and 
we went out and did that best in field run and it was beautiful. And it's yeah. so. Versus. <laughs> yes. And just to tell everybody, if you haven't taken Worked Up, uh, it's my Fenzy Dog Sports Academy course. And I also teach it as a seminar. Um, the arousal testing that Carrie's talking about is a procedure that I have in Worked Up. And it's basically just as it sounds, it's testing the dog's arousal state. Um, if you got the same test, so if, the, if she couldn't pass these arousal tests looking at an agility course, she also could not perform agility versus you get, you know, you test her arousal state and it's off the charts and she's still going to race or course exactly the way that she needs to because different arousal states are required for different tasks. And I people ask me all the time about the worked up program for things like racing, coursing, uh, dock diving, herding. And usually my answer is it's not going to be the same. It's not going to play out the same. It's designed for sports. It's designed for things that the dog has to be very thoughtful and responsive to the handler in versus kind of running on instinct. Um, so you found out a lot at that day. Uh-huh. So talk about that. Right. Well, when I figured that out, I was like, there's no way I want to take this dog in the agility ring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're like, okay, so this dog right here with the, with these huge pupils and chattering yes. chin cannot be uh-huh. the dog I have on the line. <laughs> no. <Nope. laughs> right. Right. No, no that is just not going to go well. Right. So, I mean, it just kind of brought clarity to it. Like you can think about it and say, oh yeah, I understand. But to feel that dog and to go, wow, if I had that in the agility ring, it, it's just, it, it brought tremendous clarity to that. Yeah. So you probably have a more clear understanding, I think, of any of my clients about the different arousal states in your dog and what's workable at what state. Um, or sorry, what's workable and what isn't in different sports because sin does racing and coursing and yes. you were able to look yeah. at it. So, um, and I think when you said, hey, should I be doing this at the race? I said, uh-huh. well, I said, let's try it so that you get some information. Uh-huh. But I don't think it's going to play out the same. <laughs> no, <laughs> Definitely not did not. But <laughs> it, it was not. good. It was good information. It was. Really good information. Um, so how do you manage her arousal state now around agility? So first of all, it it became really clear that sin did not rest in between runs if we were crating indoors. So it, she just wouldn't. And even if I gave her bones and things like that, she would never rest. So I, and I've ended up transferring her to, she's either in the car or she's in my RV. Yep. So that that works out. So that, she can that rest. That does. And I talk to a lot of people about that all the time. Um, it's a hard thing for a lot of people to accept because it's certainly less convenient to have to create out of your car. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I like it better because I hate schlepping everything <laughs> in and out of the building. <laughs> but... Um, you've got weather to deal with and you, you know, like, yeah, mm-hmm. there, there are things that make that a little bit harder, but if your dog is incapable of resting inside mm-hmm. the agility trial, which is very possible 
for a lot of dogs that they're just incapable of it. It is smart to just make other choices. Um, and you've taken your RV to trials uh-huh. that are, you know, 15 minute drive from your house. Right. So yep. that sin can rest in comfort <laughs> during <Yes>. the day. <laughs> Which I don't find ridiculous. I find that to be great. But, you know, some people are going to go, well, all right, that's above and beyond. Well, Uh that's just another level of you upping your game. Because Uh how long did you run agility without the RV? Well, always always there, right? Right. And I have had RVs for a long time. And I would take them to um, events far away. Yeah. And, but to use it for a local trial, that was like, what, what am I doing? You're like, why would I do that? That's so Uh silly. (laughs) Right. And so, so yeah, I do. I use it. I know one of my clients who's listening to this, who's probably, this is the final nail in the coffin because she's been thinking about buying an RV Mm -hmm. for like two years for one of her dogs. (laughs) (laughs) So it might happen now. Um, Yeah. Okay, so she can't sleep inside, so nope. you, you allow her yeah. to rest outside. What other yes. kinds of things do you do? Yes, so we, so I typically incorporate a decompression walk before the trial gets started. Excellent. Yep, we do that. Um, and my ring routine is that as things time out, I will do things like, I'll first of all, I'll notify the gate to not expect to see me hanging out because that's just not going to happen. So I notify the gate and they're usually very good with that. And then, um, I've pre stashed her snuffle mat and some treats in a certain area. Mm -hmm. Um, and we will go, when we go in, we'll do a certain amount of, of snuffling, which is, that's just been awesome because, she can snuffle and I can actually look and see what's going on. Where are we in the lineup? What's happening? Yeah. Those kind of things. And she's good. Um, we do that. We do some rhythmic exercises. I know at exactly what dog am I going to make my way toward the ring. Mm-hmm. Um, and before we do that, I, I have a, a friend, um, who's a veterinarian who's taught me some acupressure techniques that, yeah. And they access some acupuncture channels to help calm the mind. So we do that. Yeah. It's super cool. Uh, We do that. And then as we approach the ring, um, we do some rhythmic exercises and pretty much time it to be arriving. A dog is finishing and we go in. Perfect. And I think um, you're describing a routine that I try to help people get. And I think that um, there's a little bit of a catch-22 here because people get really nervous before they run. Uh And because they're nervous, they feel like they need to check the ring 5,000 times, look at the run order 5,000 times, and just basically be there and be hanging out really close by. And it's really hard on our dogs to have to be right there ringside. Certainly not all dogs. Um, Some dogs are great about it, but 
dogs that have the bigger the feelings they've got about this game, the harder it's going to be for them to hang out right there. But hasn't it helped you as well to have this really clarified routine? It does. It totally does. Because then you're not in this nervous pattern of checking the ring Mm -hmm. 5,000 times, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. And and like using the snuffle mat, Mm -hmm. those are moments too when I can look up and say, okay. I love that. You know, so-and-so's in the ring. Um, She's busy doing that. And she doesn't care. You know, she's not getting worked up at all. Yeah, because she's just engaging her nose snuffling through if you guys don't know what a snuffle mat is i think most people do at this point but it's basically just like this rug um with long fibers and you put um food down in it and because it's like a shaggy rug the dog can't see the food so they have to engage that nose um and root down through the fibers and find the treats and i have not met it's been foolproof i mean so far every dog that has tried it has totally engaged in that zen sniffing kind of mode that I want the dogs in when we're trying to bring the arousal state down. Um, I think people think their dogs are going to shred it or they're going to whatever, and they don't because they immediately go, oh, I'm scenting for food. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's great. Um, Anything else you want to say on the arousal management for her? No, I, th- I think that's about it. Okay. You know, and, and you just you just get better at it the more you do it. And and I have a short version for if I've miscalculated the time or something like that, but it it works out. Exactly. And I feel like that's what I do as well. I've got kind of my perfect world version and then real life <laughs> version yeah, that right. sometimes brings it right. down as well. <laughs> Mention the decompression walks a tiny bit because Sin gets a lot of off-leash time in her real life. And I know a lot of dogs who do, but then at an agility trial, they might not. Because we're typically in kind of a public space that we can't go on a classical, uh, classic kind of decompression walk. Um, You know, like I know for my dogs, if I'm traveling somewhere and staying in a hotel, they're going to get a lot more leash walks than they do in real life. And so you've got to kind of work around that and try to get, try to work those decompression walks in somewhere. So I really Mm -hmm. like that you, so you just do those, you make sure that she gets one of those in in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then what about in between runs sometimes? It, it all depends on, on timing and things like that. Um, but we do, and, and I try to use things like one of the places we trial is, um, a fairgrounds, so there's been horses, so a great place to do decompression walk is in and out of the stables. Yeah. Because there's awesome things to smell in there. That's a great idea. Um, yeah. That's a really good idea, especially when there are no horses in there. Because I can hear, <laughs> I can hear the, uh, the uproar. This is, the, uh-huh. this is stables that are empty, but yes. <laughs> have, had, have had horses in them. Lots uh-huh. of really good smells. Um, okay, so... What was the hardest thing that I asked you to do? Oh, leaving the ring. Leaving the Absolutely. ring. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Sucks, that doesn't was it? <laughs> it does. If you guys haven't listened to episode two, first of all, go and listen to it. But I do mention that we used um, a ring exit protocol 
for um, some of Sin's behaviors that we retrained as just kind of a contingency. If you don't do it right, we are going to leave. Um, and I'm going to do another episode, um, an entire podcast just on that concept, because I know probably a lot of you guys have questions. So Carrie, what was so hard about that? Wow. I, I think, you know, for me, it felt like, you know, a, a big buzzer went off, like we failed, we failed, we failed. Yeah. So, and so that happens. And then, you know, the having fun as a handler, like there may have been things further on in the course that I wanted to test. Yeah. It's punishing well, for you as well. Right. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's hard. Right. So there's all that, that stuff that, that happens with it. Um, and of course, you know, you just, honestly, there's the opinion of people watching. Yep. And never and short though, on those. That's no, no. <laughs> and, Plenty of those. Like, and even though it was something like you had us rehearse and practice. So for me, it was very easy to wave at the judge, say, thank you. And we leave, you know, there's, there's no drama with it. Right. All that still happens. Um, but I'll tell you how it's developed is that now, um, if, if I have a certain criteria that we're going to leave the ring, if X happens and I've gone through all of the practice in support of that, then if she can't execute that, it's a reflection of her arousal. Yeah. And it's, it's not a it's failure. Inform- Mm-mm. Exactly. No, it, it's just information, a reflection of her arousal. And then I, I look at it and say, okay, I think that, you know, maybe we need to go for another decompression walk. We need to do something to affect this. And what's been amazing is we do these things and come back. And this happened to me like two weeks ago. We had four out of five really wonderful runs. On one, I had to leave the ring because she pulled off her dog walk. Yep. And then she came back and had a spectacular jumpers run. Awesome. Yeah. And you were able to leave the ring after she pulled off that dog walk, still Mm -hmm. maintaining that that's just information Yep. and maintaining that it doesn't detract from the really fantastic runs that you had the rest of the weekend either. Right. And also like up to that point, you know, usually by the time of her arousal in the ring is to that point, things kind of build to that point, but she had like, her opening, I tested something on her A-frame to get lateral distance mm-hmm. and to not take an off-course tunnel, and she nailed that. It was beautiful. And even though several obstacles later we we left the ring, it didn't negate all of that good that happened before. And Absolutely. Sound, you know, it sounds kind of weird, but it didn't. You know, things just built in a direction where she – was too aroused was over the top and very possible that the challenges that she was able Mm -hmm. to do are are what pushed her to that point Mm -hmm. as well I mean I see that happening all the time that you ask for something really really difficult and the dog nails it Mm -hmm. but then three obstacles later they don't do something that you actually expect them to be able to do um and sometimes that is just what happens um 
And knowing what your response is when it happens, I think is less stressful than having that moment of, oh crap, what now? She just came <laughs> off the dog walk. Uh-huh. What, what do we do now? Instead, you're really clear about you just look to the judge, say thank you, and you're out. And then you do your normal end of run routine. It's not like yeah. it's not like you drag her to her crate and you know, I think pe- like people call it the walk of shame and it shouldn't be. It should just be, all right, game over then. That's cool. Let's go go on your walk and eat your cookies. Um uh-huh. it really doesn't need to be um and I'm going to talk about this in the next episode. You can just let the procedure speak for itself. You don't need to also be a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On top right. of it. Um, so that was the hardest thing I asked you to do. But what's been the toughest part of the whole journey for you? I think that that's been... Um, well, it's a little bit complicated. So because it is a journey. Yeah. So... So being patient during the process um, and, and being patient during our development and remembering what my big picture is for team synergy. Yeah. So that it's been tough because, you know, there's a lot of things where it's for myself, it's easy for me to start this silly comparison game. I compare her to her litter mates. I compare her to other dogs that started a novice at the same time and do things like that. And then just remember what is my definition of success? What is my definition? What is the big picture for team synergy? And to be patient and to know that we do this work and we're going to get there. And one of the things that you did that I that was your idea that I thought was so smart was you actually just wrote out a mission statement for Team Synergy, <laughs> yes. right? You said, okay, uh-huh. let's get real uh-huh. about this. What? Because yes. I asked you, I said, so what are you doing agility for? Right. And when I ask people that question, they either give me a canned answer, they go, for fun. And I go, yeah, right, let's get real. What are you mm-hmm. really doing it for? Um, when you get really real about what you're doing this sport for, I think it can clarify a lot for you. And where we kind of landed was that you're interested in pursuing excellence in this sport. You're not interested in titles, um, or any kind of arbitrary measurements of success like that. Mm -hmm. You're interested in what you think is actually excellence. Um, Which is where that patience comes in because having to leave the ring because your dog blew a start line doesn't feel like excellence, right? That feels yucky. (laughs) Um, Yes. I'm going to say it is excellence if you're doing it right. But, um, you know, you and that's where you got really real about handling, too, because Mm -hmm. you're trying to pursue excellence in this sport. You're not there to just you know, have a breed ranking or have a title or whatever. So I think getting real about why you do agility, seeing the big picture for you and your team with this dog has been Mm -hmm. 
for me, just a really cool thing to witness because you've stayed true to it. Um, so talk about handling a little bit, if you if you will, because I think that's been that was a huge thing. That was a big part. We should talk about that. And that wasn't it is. that I didn't help you with that. <laughs> I want to be clear that I told you a couple of names of people to go get better help from than me. Yes. (laughs) Well, well, it was, I mean, it was really interesting because um, to find an instructor, an instructor who, who has experience with a similar dog. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying like, okay, I need to find someone who has ran race bred whippets, but because good luck. Yeah, right. And they're <laughs> out there, and there's some really great handlers, but they are way far away from me. Right. But you know, you turn me on to instructors who run, you know, big strided, powerful border collies. Yep. So we have because that's what she runs like. Mm-hmm. She does, and she also yeah. runs with. Um, she runs with raw speed that mm-hmm. we don't actually see that often in this country. Um, yeah, because it's not actually rewarded in agility in this country the way that it is um, mm-hmm. in some other places. She has the kind of raw speed that um, I think is rare anymore. So you actually needed instructors who know how to run a dog like that without hampering that speed. Because I think so often in this country, especially we want them to add strides, check in with us, be careful because we want them to run clean. And you, so I, you know, one of the people that you have, done a lot of good work with is our mutual friend Jen Martin who's in Colorado yes runs mm-hmm. amazing amazing powerful border collies who she has no interest in slowing down at all no. <laughs> right <laughs> no. because no. she loves it she wants uh-huh. them to be fast right so you yes. got some really good in-person help from her and then um you've worked with Loretta Loretta Mueller yes as well um and gotten some great help from her too Talk about some of the things that you kind of figured out in the handling piece that was so different from, so different from Danes and Italian Greyhounds. Well, it's just, (laughs) I mean, it's just different having like, I can never keep up with her. That's No, you can't. You just give it up. (laughs) Right. Right. It's, it's not going to happen. So, so timing is different. Mm -hmm. Um, So timing where I give information, there's a whole new skill set, like, I need Sin to be able to hit a backside from 15 feet away. Yeah. Because I can't be up there. And I want to be clear with everybody listening. Carrie actually is a fast runner. Like, (laughs) you actually can run. There are a lot of people doing agility who can't. um, And they do fine, but they need to train. You're actually no slouch, and you still need a 15-foot backside. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Because that's how fast this dog is. Right. Right. And, and so it's like, so there's this whole skill set that I need to, so the training of that and then handling the whole timing has been totally different. Yeah. And I, I mean, undoubtedly synergy will let me know if my front cross was late. (laughs) Yes. She will. 
she will say, you are on my line. What are you doing? You know, like this was, you know, she just lets me know. Yeah. Um, so I really had to, I spent, oh my gosh, I've spent a year just working on timing and clean crosses, getting out of her way, um, all of those things. And have let a lot of, like, I've not done a lot of the international handling and fancy stuff because my other stuff needed to be so good. Because you needed to clean up the actual yes. meat and potatoes mm-hmm. of your handling. Yes. Because, and I think I said this to you a long time ago, I think most people in the sport of dog agility don't even really know what it feels like to do a front cross on time. And you yeah. had to learn with Synergy. Mm-hmm how to do it on time. It feels like you're way too early um, because you've got to be done, rotated out, gone. And now the dog is mm-hmm. coming in, right? Because yes. if you can, because you've just got to be that quick because otherwise you guys are going to have a collision. Right. Um, because right. she is that fast. <laughs> uh-huh. Um. And then I think people are probably wondering this because I mentioned it in episode one, um, that she would bite you mm-hmm. on occasion. Right. How much better did that get when the handling piece got figured out? Oh, way better. Exactly. Absolutely. I exactly. mean, I mean, my opinion is when, when those episodes would happen, they were clearly a message to me that my handling was not that it was just awful, but you know, I was either on her line. I, it was confusing. She was confused. I think most of the time, right. You know, there, there were things, um, there were things like that. It was, those were just big messages. And one of the things that I've learned, like in the ring, I rarely correct a mistake. Right, there's, you just keep going. Like a handling error. Yep. Like she misses mm-hmm. a jump or something like that. Just keep mm-hmm. moving. Yep, just keep going. You know, we had like a, a top gun flyby, I call it. Where Maverick calls the tower and <laughs> she she hit the afterburners and you know, we missed a jump and somebody was reviewing my run and like, I don't know why you didn't qualify. And it's like, Well, we missed a jump. <laughs> And what's great about that, because I it's hard for me to get people to do that, to convince them to do that, to just keep to just keep running. Um, what it buys you in the long run versus, you know, in your low lower levels in AKC or in USDAA as well. If you go by a jump, if you just come and fix it, you're still uh-huh. good. You're still in the clear. Yeah. Um it'll buy you so much more in the long run than just that cue for yeah. the dog to never know that there was an error because all that happens because they don't understand what an error is. They didn't read the numbers. They don't know what the course is. Right. So all it is, is they're just, they're going to slow down because they're not trusting you to tell them where to go or they're going to collide with you potentially with their teeth (laughs) to let you know (laughs) that this error was actually yours. Um, But I'm glad that's so much better. Is there anything else that you want to share? about the story um let's see wow we covered so much and i'm looking at all my things um i don't oh yes yes there is okay, there is good. 
So I did want to talk about something in training. You talked about some specific things, but I wanted to talk about two concepts that were, that really became important okay. was in training synergy. I found that, you know, I had to be a better trainer. I had to be a more thorough trainer. Band-aids don't work, period. It's yeah. just not going to hold up. And so I think when you have dogs like this who run with intensity and have run under high arousal, they have to be trained so thoroughly that what they're doing is easy. Yeah. And it holds up under all this arousal. So that's been, for me, a super important con- concept. And in fact, some of the things I'm working on now, like you mentioned, like her teeter, you know, I'm in the same process of getting that just completely bomb proof. Mm-hmm. Like, I want, I want her contacts to be just beautiful, trustworthy, and to hold up like as if we were in Grand Prix finals. Like, I, I want yep. her contacts to be that good, that solid, under when I'm full of nerves. You know, I, I just want that. So for me, training, like to train to such a thorough level, and I, I realize and I accept that these are going to be continual projects and little things can can pop up and, okay, we're going to work on that. Right, because the so. ring itself actually degrades the behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so you all, you have to keep going back to reinforcement. Yes. Um, you have to keep going back to it. And I think a lot of people get away with half-ass training and agility um, or they train – something to a certain level and then they just go compete and they quit training it and they just they get away with it I've gotten away with it before you've gotten away with it before you're not going to get away with it with sin and you know that now (laughs) right yep I do and and I don't take it as any kind of a front that when those things pop up it's like okay here's information let's work on that yes you you have developed the worldview of a trainer, which is that behavior is information. It's not about you. It's not about who you are as a person. <laughs> it's not about, uh-huh. you know, just leave your ego out of it. And when something goes wrong, go back to the training drawing board, fix it in training. That's the, that's the attitude that I wish everybody could adopt and understand that the dog's not blowing you off. The dog's not doing uh-huh. this on purpose. Um, it all comes back to training, which means that it all comes back to reinforcement, which I think is the next thing you're going to talk about. Right. I, I think one of the most, in, well, one of, for me, the most insightful and liberating things that we did was the concept of sustainable reinforcement. And when we made the move, whenever I did sequence training, we got all of the reinforcement off my body Mm-hmm. We trained her to go to her treat pouch and and so that you know much like the ring, so we're working these sequences and if anything like good, bad, and different happens, I just send her to go get her treats. Yeah. And it's so nice. It's like I don't even have to think about it. I send her to, to go to get her treats and she and she loves it. And because I think sequences have nothing to do with the actual, like, dog training part. It's Mm -hmm. the handler part. Right. 
So you have to just be liberal with the reinforcement. Uh And when you say sustainable reinforcement, that means ring sustainable. It means it looks more like it looks in the ring, which is why we got the food off your body, put it somewhere else, taught her ahead of time that if you say a specific word, you're going to run over to the cookies um, and have treats out of the treat pouch. And so taught her that ahead of time. And then you're able to, because I think a lot of times, you know, we work sequences with food or toys on our body. And uh-huh. so anytime an error occurs, we can just hand them the reinforcer. And that's not a bad thing to do. And we should all probably do that with our young dogs coming up. But at some point, especially when you're trialing, you have to get away from it because it will just act as a crutch. And then the dog will not understand yeah. how to respond when they feel confusion in a trial. Because in training, every time they felt confusion, you just handed them something. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, it, and it's not there. And it's then it's not there in the trial. And then you get biting, barking, spinning, whatever, um, as a result. So anything more you want to say about that? Well, that that was, I mean, I just love that and, and using that. And now, you know, then we linked it to, um, you know, go get your leash. Uh-huh. And then go get your leash to let's go get your treats. Yeah. So for the ring behavior, it, it becomes complete in that sense. So she fully understands the path to reinforcement. And yes. we talk about this a lot with these dogs that are worked up or have big feelings or however you want to label it. They have to understand the path to reinforcement. I think all dogs need and deserve that. It's just that not all of them go crazy on you <laughs> when <laughs> when they don't have it. And so um, you have worked very hard on showing her the, be- the pre-run sequence as well as the post-run sequence, which is leash up, go to the cookies, then, you know, then continue on. But I think showing them that in training well ahead of time is so worthwhile. Yes. So worthwhile. All right. Anything else, Carrie? No, I think that's it. Well, thank you so much for not only being on the podcast, but for trusting me to help you with sin. I have had such a such a good time watching you guys uh, just become the team that you are. And I feel privileged to have been able to do that with you. Well, thank you. It, it has just been a marvelous, marvelous journey. And it, and it carries on. It does. <laughs> it goes it does. on. It goes on. All More right, Carrie. More to come. <laughs> of course. Thank you so much. I will talk to you soon. Okay. Take care.